I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which I'm recording today, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and pay my respects to elders past and present. Hello, my extraordinary friends. Well, shit, eh? So it's the 11th billionth week of August and we're in the third week of stage four lockdown in Victoria right now. It's heavy. There's a lot of people hurting. There's a lot of people angry and scared and suffering. And while I believe wholeheartedly that we're doing the right thing in being locked down, I really hope it's effective because I have a nephew to meet and a kid to get back to school. I started out the stage three feeling okay about it all. We had about 50 boxes delivered from Ikea amidst an epic hangover after Mick's birthday a few days before the stage three lockdown came into effect. They were to fit out our walk-in wardrobe and make it a more functional space. And I'll let you in on a little secret. I really like assembling flat pack. So it was like a treat. I don't think I've mentioned it on the podcast before, but I once had dreams of being a furniture maker and I did an apprenticeship in cabinet making straight out of high school. So doing a flat pack project is kind of a return to old familiar skills without being too taxing or involving a lot of sawdust. It was actually super helpful and distracting having a project that took me out of my head and resulted in such a good end product. It's possible I have too much wardrobe space now. And smashing out the existing cabinetry to be able to remove it was pretty cathartic as well. It took me about two weeks of evenings after the kids had gone to sleep to get it all fitted out. And I even got to customise part of the unit so I'd fit in around an irregularity in the back wall of the wardrobe. And sometimes that old me and those skills seem so far away. But then I get to use them and tapping into that and using my brain and actually achieving something was very good for the old mental health. But if you want an indicator of how I'm feeling now, nearly six weeks later, I still haven't put all my clothes away. I've done a big clean out and got rid of clothes that I've been hoping to fit back into for far too long. I half started the Mari Kondo folding and I've got little piles of things to send to family and friends, but it's not finished yet because most days right now, apathy rules. I would say I'm in a pretty even keel. I'm not feeling the giant swings of emotion that characterized the first lockdown, but I'm exhausted all the time, unmotivated, and I feel like I'm wading through quicksand. I haven't been able to get my head around sitting down and preparing my intro for this episode even. I just haven't had the brain space or the energy. After a full day of coaxing one kid into completing her school tasks while trying to engage a toddler who has an affinity for pushing buttons, a sugar addiction, and a constant desire to watch some kind of screen, and then managing all the big emotions that come along with small children who are navigating a set of circumstances far beyond the realms of their understanding, who are thoroughly sick of me, but also want to be on me at all times, and then trying to exist in a house that is constantly disintegrating around me, I'm a little bit done by bedtime. So instead of being productive and addressing the ever-growing list of things I need to do, like working on the books for our business, reorganizing the wardrobe, replying to emails and texts, sorry if you're waiting on one from me, paying bills or recording this podcast intro, I sit in front of the TV or my phone and passively absorb whatever's in front of me, thinking about all the things I'm too tired to do and feel guilty for not doing them. 
until it gets to like 11 o'clock and I decide that I really should have gone to bed two hours earlier and then I'm tired because on top of the late bedtime, neither of my kids are sleeping well. So I'm up multiple times a night and then I sleep in in the morning, which means I'm starting everything behind where I wanted to and the days have just been rolling on. I was talking to my sister about it and how a few friends have told me they've been doing the same thing. And she told me about a term she just heard called nighttime revenge procrastination. It's a thing. Basically, a lot of people do it when they feel like they don't have a lot of control over their days. It's the only time you get downtime. So you're trying to reclaim that lost power then. I like when the nonsensical behavior I engage in has a label and a definition attached to it. it makes me feel legitimate. It hasn't really changed what I'm doing though. I'm getting this out. I guess that's something. So what has been happening while we're in lockdown? Well, Ken's, my six-year-old, celebrated her 101 days of learning last week. The plan had been for all the preppies to go to school dressed as Dalmatians and for a big deal to be made of them for all that they've achieved this year. Ken's favourite thing is to pretend to be a puppy, so this was right up her alley. And the kids dressed as Dalmatians and they did story time via Webex and the teacher sent a little gift bag home with the learning packs of treats and a certificate, which was really sweet. But my heart hurts for my little girl, who is really being so amazing, but she's missing out on a magical year of school with an excellent teacher and kind and fun friends around her. We worked hard to get Ken's ready for prep and she's absolutely loved it. And to think that half her year has been derailed is so unfair. I have full confidence in her learning. But the thing she's missing out on most is that social development and connection. And that's the kind of stuff that's hard to teach without your peers. I did get to have a big outing a few weeks ago when I got to take Harvey, my three-year-old, to the COVID clinic to get a swab after he woke up sick one morning. We waited on our yellow cross taped to the floor for about an hour. The Panadol had kicked in and Harv was pretty chipper. He made me look like I just made it all up. Do your kids do that too? Thankfully, he wasn't at full capacity, so he was happy to just be carried and chat and sing songs while I tried not to stress about how the test would go. And then my delightful little weirdo giggled as the lady tickled his nose and mouth. Those were his words. He received a sticker that was undoubtedly the highlight of his day, and away we went. Straight home, obviously. He's since been cleared with a negative result, which was a relief. But it really brought home to me how easily I could have just ignored his symptoms, which were mild and not followed through with the test because I was so worried about how it would actually go down. For others out there wondering if they should get the test and worried about it being horrible, I'm here to say, go get the test. My three-year-old says it tickles. The most exciting news, though, is we're getting a puppy. Just as this lockdown winds up, I'm being an optimist. It'll wind up or back or something. A little Springer Spaniel named Rosie will be joining the family. We haven't told the kids yet, and I'm holding on to the big reveal as a delicious treat to look forward to as a high point in the coming weeks. The kids are gonna shit. She's named Rosie because that's what the kids call all the little baby lemons growing on the trees in the orchard. When we go walking, they visit them and praise them for growing so well. We have no idea why they call them Rosie, but it's stuck. I was throwing all sorts of names at Mick, who was knocking them back out of hand in a way very reminiscent to how we had the naming discussions for the kids. When he asked Harv, what would you call a girl dog if you had one? Rosie, he said. And so it is. My weekly Rosie updates are getting me through this. She's super smudgy and cute right now. 
I'm a bit worried that we're adding a rather large helping of extra work to our plates, but I'm hoping the distraction, cuddles, playing and affection will outweigh the accidents on the carpets and human toys being mistaken for dogs' toys. So here we are getting through another set of unprecedented circumstances and I'm doing my best to be hopeful and positive and be grateful for the things and the security we have and for the things I did to get to do between lockdowns. I'm grateful that when we could get out, that I didn't cancel on catch-ups with friends even when it was raining. I'm grateful we explored our local area and went for walks on our weekends. I'm grateful for the weekends where we saw our families and caught up with friends and for the four days my parents took the kids at the start of school holidays. Do you remember the school holidays? I'm grateful for the messages and the calls to check in and the gifts in the mail and for Kate, my PT, who you all met in the first podcast episode, being so generous and a source of normality as she creates daily exercise videos for anyone who wants to use them. I'm grateful for the timing of my sister's online yoga nidra sleep course that I've been a part of so that the sleep I do get is actually good quality and for the return of the women's yoga on Saturday where a delightful group of ladies I've never met in real life get to check in with each other and ourselves and move our bodies. I'm so grateful that I kept my day spa booking with a friend for the Wednesday before stage three took effect because I have a feeling pampering and human contact is going to be scarce for a while yet. I'm a million times grateful for all of you who have been sending me feedback about the last episode with Deb. It really seemed to have hit a nerve with so many of you. Deb's clarity of purpose and her place in the world and her perspective on things like feminism and equality, her experiences and the way she navigates the space between our reality and our ideals was inspiring for me. And it sounds like you all got a lot out of it too. And I'm sorry if I made you cry. I got a lot of messages about that. Listeners walking down the street crying, driving in their cars crying. Sometimes life is just hard and unfair and some people have such a fucking raw deal. I hope those of you having a hard time are okay, that you have someone to reach out to. Sometimes knowing you're being heard makes all the difference. Thanks for listening to some of the hard bits with me on that episode. Now, I should introduce you to my next guest, the lovely Sophia. She came all the way out to my place in the magical space between states of emergency to have a really incredible and honest chat in the new podcasting room in chairs that don't creak. Fee and I move in the same social circles and I'm always drawn to her when we do share a space. She's fun, smart and funny. We've gotten to know each other in a strange mix of real life hangs and social media interactions. She's an excellent communicator and I always find her perspective on current events and politics in her social media very interesting. I honestly thought we'd get into a bit of that in this chat together, but what I actually got was to hear about growth and education, backing yourself through loneliness, finding love and friendship, and leaving a restrictive evangelical religion, and how she was then ostracized from her community. We spoke for a couple of hours, so I'm actually going to release the first half today, and the other half in a few weeks, so you can pace yourself. Also, I live in the country, and the internet connection here is shocking, so I don't think I'll manage an interview over Zoom. That wouldn't be infuriating to listen to. In the meantime, I continue to feel humbled by the conversations I've gotten to have so far creating this podcast. Getting an insight into a person's history and their life is truly a gift. I really hope you enjoy listening to my extraordinary, ordinary chat with Sophia. Welcome, Fee. 
Thank you. Thank you for having me. No worries. Welcome to Extraordinary Ordinary. Have you had an extraordinary week or an ordinary week? I have had a fairly, I reckon, extraordinary week actually. Mm-hmm. Um, I had, On Monday I just finished my final exam for my degree at uni. I've got a little bit more to go but all my other units don't have exams so mm-hmm. I feel like a big weight's been lifted. So yep. that was my big achievement for the week is to get that one out of the way mm. um, and have a few glasses of bubbly afterwards. <laughs> What was that feeling like when you walked out? Oh, it was really good. I actually had to do it online because oh. all the um, the coronavirus has kind of stopped the whole uni exam yeah. things. So it was weird because I wasn't really expecting it to be as stringent as it was. I thought okay. maybe online exams, I'm like, oh, that sounds pretty cruisy. It's a bit open book. Yeah, but it really wasn't because yeah, they, okay. they're really strict. So you have to sort of log into this program where they're able to take access of your computer and they sort of monitor you on webcam and they wow. scan your eyes in case you're reading anything you're not meant to because it's closed books. So it was actually, I reckon you'd probably cheat more in an, in an example. Yeah. <laughs> did you did you feel like you were being watched? Like um, was the... I was very aware of it. Yeah. yeah, I was very aware of it. Um, and I was also really aware of where my eyes were moving because yeah. <laughs> I didn't want to look, like I had nothing around me. I wasn't yeah. cheating, but yeah. every time I sort of looked away to gather my thoughts, I'm like, oh God, what are they thinking? <laughs> so, I'd be like setting up like a camera behind me yeah. just to prove that I wasn't doing anything They sometimes wrong. make you actually use a mirror so they can see what's on your laptop oh as well. So it's quite strict. Wow. Yeah. So it was a new experience because obviously I've only yeah. ever done it on campus before. But, um, yeah, it's done. Oh, my Finished. God. I'm just thinking about like every time I go to do like a Zoom meeting or something lately, you know, I've got to update Zoom or like a, there's always something or I've got to reset the router or I'm like coming into an exam. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. It was a bit – I was surprised how nervous I was because I thought it would be much more relaxed being at home. In my own environment, but it was yeah. just as nerve-wracking. Yeah, <laughs> but big uh, relief. Well, so it's been extraordinary this week. Yeah, and how do you feel you went? Oh, really good actually. Yeah, I revised really hard. It was quite a big subject, but I'm fairly confident with the subject. It was a mm-hmm. it was a third year marketing subject, but I felt I had a really good grasp of the cons like the the content of the course. So. Yep. Yeah, I reckon I nailed it. Well, we'll see. Might be a bit too confident, might be a bit cocky. (laughs) (laughs) I worked hard, so I think I did it. I think I did good. Awesome. Yeah. And what's the, what are you studying at uni again? So I'm doing a Bachelor of Communication and Public Relations. This is my, this is, I'm in my final, I think, six or seven months of the degree. Okay. I started it when Ethan, my son, who's nearly five, was 10 months old. So. It's wow. been a it's been a long slog, but yeah. well worth it. I've really enjoyed it. Good, good. How are your time management skills? <clears throat> Actually, appalling in all <laughs> other aspects of life. But with uni, like it's like I'm in a, I have an amazing time management schedule for uni. Oh, it's wow. like everything else falls apart, but that has always yep. been a consistently strong, organized area of my life. Um, I do Wednesdays. No, Mondays and Wednesdays, yep. both the kids go to daycare or kinder. Um, and they're my full days where I'm able to sit down, get through the content, do assignments and work. And then anything else, I don't always get it done on those two days. Then after yep. that, it just has to be night work. Wow. So it's been, re- it's, it's, it's been a really long <laughs> four years because <laughs> I feel like some, some weeks have just been nonstop all night. So yeah. 
but it's it goes quickly yeah surprisingly okay. yeah i've um i've thought about studying uh because a very for a very long time i think i limited myself and so now i'm starting to go wow like you know the kids are nearly at school i would like to be contributing to something somewhere i, I think but, it's very easy to limit yourself yeah but and then i'm like well and i if I'm not going to limit myself, I could do anything, mm-hmm. but I don't know what I want to do. And my time management skills are, are appalling and I, so that makes I me think really it nervous. Would, I think it would change if you started studying because I mm. think with studying it's one of those um, it's one of those tasks that has a huge end result. Yeah, okay, yeah. So it's not just something you're sort of floating through and doing. Yeah. It's something where you're always get like getting to a destination and you yep. want to get there. Yeah. And well, you committed. Yeah, so well, that's my it. biggest frustration yeah. at the moment is everything I do is um, it's what's that? Uh, it's like the law of physics or it's like atrophy. Like so whatever I do gets undone. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so it never ends. No, but, it's like, but that's yeah. the difference. There is always something to complete. There's always an assignment, an exam, mm. and then you complete a unit and then you move on to the next one and at the end of it you get a degree. So you get a it's always something to work towards, which I think is really good. But it's it's really exciting. I did not know what I wanted to study. Yeah, I okay. came from dental nursing. Yep. And I'd always been in a health background, but I decided to, when I had Ethan, he was 10 months old and I was having a freak out because I didn't want to go back to dental nursing because I just didn't really enjoy it and I thought I would just check out what I could do study-wise. I actually met a mum at my mum's group and she um, suggested studying and she was doing law. Oh, yeah, just a nice light subject. Oh, my God, this woman is amazing. Yeah. And she just said to me really nonchalantly, just, oh, just go and study something. It's fine. If you don't have time, there's heaps of online degrees you can do. Mm -hmm. And she, it was just the way she was just so just shrugged and was like, no big deal. Yeah. I thought, you know what, I'm going to do it. Amazing. And so, yeah, I just looked online. I sort of aligned myself to a discipline that I felt would interest me the most. Mm-hmm. And this one's good because it's creative as well as business related. Yep. And it turns out it was the perfect choice. But there is so much choice. So it's yeah. overwhelming. But yeah. if you really have a passion, you can really find something that you're able to flourish in. Yeah. And it was the best decision I made. So oh, thanks. Here. I just don't want just, to go back to work. Now. <laughs> just keep studying. Yeah, it's I like, know. Oh, what's just, next? Yeah, I have to pick another one. Stay yeah. At home. <laughs> well, it was funny because uh, a mutual friend of ours, Nicole, you know, I was doing my head in last year, overthinking it and going, what should I do? And what am I going to study? And, you know, I spoke to her one day and she, she was like, oh, yeah, no, like I'm like four weeks into my marketing degree. And I'm like, um, Sorry, what? But, like, <laughs> but you haven't ever thought this at all. Like you haven't been, you know, discussing it with us, running it past people and she was just like, no, that's just what I'm doing. No, <laughs> and what Nicole did was she started her degree and her, I think her uh, bachelor is business and oh, her right. major was marketing and she decided um, that marketing wasn't for her. So she switched to, I think, business administration. So that's the beauty of starting a degree as well. If you mm. pick a base, then you can kind of change around and you're not completely limited to what you've started. Yeah. With. And if you don't like it, change. Once you're in there, you can, you've got the options to switch around or mix it up a bit. So look at you. Yeah. Careers advisor. <laughs> It's just, I think I've always, um, I think study always scared me. It was always this mental block that I couldn't do anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, And once you overcome that, you realise that actually 
it's not really a big deal and it's very easy. You can do it if you really want to. And it's good on you. Yeah. Love it. How do we know each other? So my husband Greg is friends with I think a big bunch of Glen Waverley high school kids. Mm -hmm. I think your husband Mick Mm -hmm. and him were friends in school. Yep. Um and you and I met maybe a few years ago now. Yeah. We've sort of been swimming in the same social circle. <laughs> um, with all the coronavirus, yeah, that makes me feel yeah. a bit icky. <laughs> yes, maybe swimming is a bad word. Um, yeah, so I think that was maybe a couple of years ago now. Yeah. Um, and we've sort of seen each other out a few times, done yep. a few wineries. and We do all the good things. Yeah. 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 It's nice. It's been nice for me to um, branch out my sort of social life and meet some new people, which mm-hmm. has been awesome. I've been with Greg seven years and it was really nice to sort of sort of integrate into his group and meet some really nice people. And it's good because, like, we don't sort of do things, you know, like I've got the girlfriends now yeah. and then yep. he's got his friends. So we sort of, I've sort yeah. of found a nice base of girls and, and that's been awesome. So it's been really nice. Good. Where did you grow up? I grew up in the UK. So I grew up in, um, I was born in a town called Crawley. Mm-hmm. Uh, most people know that for Gatwick Airport. It's oh, right by no. Gatwick Airport. Okay. I've moved around a fair bit. Yeah. So um, I was grew up in Crawley and then a little town called Uckfield in the southeast of England. And then when I was about 10, I moved up to Yorkshire. So mm-hmm. Yorkshire is north, about 250 miles north. And I did that when I was 10. I stayed in Yorkshire from 10 till the age of 23 and then moved over to Melbourne. Wow. So it's been a bit of a chop and change. Yeah. Um, sort of spent my life in lots of different places. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, I grew up, I would say I really grew up um, in the south and split between the south and north of England and it was right. a really beautiful place. Like both places I lived were really beautiful, so mm-hmm. I was very lucky. What were the reasons for the moves? My dad, so um, I think when I, where I grew up in Crawley was a very small house. I think it was really just an upsizing situation while we moved to a, the town called Uckfield. Uckfield was a very English town, <laughs> <laughs> a very conservative English town. Um, not a lot going for it, I don't mm-hmm. think. It was very pretty. We stayed there for seven years, but my dad suffered a lot of redundancies in his yeah, okay. work. I think it was in the 90s, it was that time where computers started really kicking off and a lot of people who yeah. sort of a lot of computers started taking over what people were doing manually. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think my dad found himself stuck a few times and had to retrain a few times. Um, right. He lost his job and eventually got one up in York, which is in um, Yorkshire. And Go we figure. all had to move. So we all trucked our stuff up there, I think, 97, 1997. Okay. I always get the impression with people who live in England that even though it's not huge a country that like a move like that is actually epic. It's like massive. You, yeah. It's massive. Yeah. It's really funny when you in the UK because it's so small, any amount of distance seems really large. Mm-hmm. It's so bizarre for me to think and reflect back now, considering the distance that I would drive to go and see a friend or go mm-hmm. and spend a day at the beach here or go for a weekend somewhere. I So to put it in perspective, I lived in Leeds for some of my adult life and I have never lived, visited Liverpool and I reckon that's about two hours away. And it's an amazing city, one of the cultural hotspots of the UK. Yep. Just never went. Nope. 
Just like, oh, two hours is a bit far. <laughs> Screw that. <laughs> For a weekend? Yeah. Oh, you just travelled, what, an hour to get here? <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's really bizarre, your sort of sense of space and and travel and distance. And also in the UK, it's really interesting because dialect and accents mm-hmm. are so different in such a short amount of time. So say from Melbourne to Frankston, you could travel that distance and you'd be in a completely different part of the UK, different dialect, different accent, yep. different way of life. Mm-hmm. And it's quite amazing when you sort of come away from it and look at it and go, yeah, that's quite, that's quite something. Wow. Yeah. So like if I was to travel from Leeds to Liverpool, mm-hmm. I would go from a Yorkshire accent going over to what they call a Scouse accent, a Liverpool accent, and they'd have a different way of saying things. Mm-hmm. Um, and it would, and sometimes you would struggle to understand them. <laughs> it's really bizarre. Same with <laughs> like a Geordie accent as well. Yep. It's like, have you heard Geordie, Geordie Shaw? That's why yeah. a lot of people, Geordie is the accent and the dialect of the northeast of England. And a lot of people sort of have to put subtitles on. Yeah. And even I do for Geordie Shaw. I'm like, I have no idea what they're saying. And that is, again, like two hours north of where I grew up. So That's hilarious. Yeah, it's really bizarre. It's very interesting. But, it's yeah. so, I mean, England, in England itself is so historical and it's it goes back such a long way that mm-hmm. everyone sort of branched out and did their own thing. And Yeah. yeah it's a yeah. very unique place, I think. And you've got higher concentration, so people didn't have to move as far, I guess. That's it. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah, so... And so how come, what what was the move to Melbourne? Was that an intentional move or were you coming for a holiday? Or? No, um, no, for me it really was an intentional move. It was I got a working holiday visa. Mm-hmm. I moved out with my boyfriend at the time. He was a doctor. He'd just finished medical school and he okay. just, I think he'd done the first two years of his, um, what do they call it, like a foundation training at the hospital after his degree okay. we we like we had to wait for him to do that before he was able to sort of get a job mm-hmm. overseas we moved over I, I went on a working holiday visa he came over on a sort of a sponsored visa through the hospital and really the intention was one year with the sort of intention to maybe push out for two but mm-hmm. that's it and one year just goes past too quick mm-hmm. and you don't really get any time to do anything you know it was really hard for me in Melbourne because I sort of came across quite careless and fancy free. <laughs> I, I didn't have any money. I lived in this box apartment in Richmond. Um, pretty much, I think maybe 60% of my weekly wage went towards rent. So I didn't have yep. very much else. My boyfriend was at the time, It was a, he was a bit weird. And we'd been together a long time, but we didn't share anything. So yeah, okay. if I didn't have money, that's it. I yeah. didn't have it. I was skin all the time. And I wasn't sure... I really wanted to stay. I wasn't getting my full, what I dreamed out of Australia. And also I yep. think when you're British and you come to Australia, living in Richmond, Melbourne isn't exactly the Australia a British person knows. No, <laughs> no it's <laughs> very different to the Gold Coast. Yeah, yeah, very different. But I was enjoying it and we decided to give it a crack for another year. Mm-hmm. I managed to hop over onto his visa. Ah, okay, yep. Um, and we stayed for a second year, but then we broke up we realised it wasn't really working and I was in a really fortunate point where we had literally just been granted residency. Oh, right. Which means I wouldn't have to leave even if we broke up. Okay. It wasn't planned that way. Yeah. I didn't realise we were going to break up, but we did. (laughs) But timing's everything. But it was awesome timing because Mm -hmm. it meant I didn't have to go home. It was a hard decision to stay because I wasn't, I didn't have anyone here. I'd only been here two years. 
I didn't really have many friends because it's quite hard to make friends when you move to a new country, especially when all you do is working in hospitality and that's a very volatile industry. Different people. Lots of different people, yep. people coming and going constantly. So there was <laughs> never, I never had a friend group. And I, when when we broke up, I moved out and it was very difficult. I didn't, I was at this stage where I'm like, I could just go home and this yeah. would be so much easier. I'd just set up near my parents and start again because um, it was a really big life change. You know, Absolutely. I'd been and away from home and your support network. You're sort of dealing with sort of disappointment and you ha- you're a bit heartbroken um, mm. and you don't really know what your plan is in life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was like a, it was a real pivotal moment and I remember I had a friend called Debbie who was a mutual friend of mine and Dave's my ex-boyfriend and she just said, you're going to go and you're going to regret it for the rest of your life oh wow and I sat and I thought about it and I'd just signed the lease on this new apartment Mm -hmm. and I was moving in with this girl called Melissa and I thought I'm just going to give it three more months Mm -hmm. and see how I am in three more months and in three more months I was doing so much better and I said okay six more months and then if I really don't feel like this is my place I'm just going to go home and I just yeah, I just guess I just found my feet and I really yeah. found um, I, I found a good group of friends. Uh, I was, that's when I started working as a dental nurse. Um, I'd done my training and became a dental nurse and I found a good group of girlfriends. Mm-hmm. They kept me going. And then after that, I kind of just felt a bit more empowered. Yeah. Like I could really stay or do anything or go anywhere I wanted to. I didn't really yeah. need anyone to help me. Yeah. So it was a really grounding experience, I think, being here on your own um, and not really having anyone. Yeah. And sort of really relying on yourself pretty much 100%. Mm-hmm. And having to, making friends is really hard because it was just impossible to get in with a, like a solid friendship group. Like yeah. everyone had their people. Yeah. Um, you're the new girl. It mm-hmm. was really difficult. Um, I found it very hard. So I think me just, relying on myself and being by myself a lot, which I was, yep. was a really grounding experience. And I think it sort of made me grow as a person much more. Mm-hmm. It's a little depressing at times. Yeah. Like, you know, could, and could, Christmas, could you... Christmas on your own is a bit oh sad. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> it was a bit depressing, but on a whole it was a really positive experience, I think. Yeah. Could you see that at the time or do you think, like, looking back, you're like, yeah, wow, that was really... A, like a growth opportunity. Oh, looking but... back, I can see that. I think there were a few times... Um, in the moment I would sort of go, yeah, you're a strong, independent woman. You can do anything you want to. And then there were times where I would, you know, it would be the weekend and I wouldn't have anyone to hang out with. Mm. And you'd sort of just like get the tram to the city and just wander around the galleries or something and go, well, this is pretty depressing. (laughs) (laughs) Um, you know, there was other things I I did as well that I found enjoyment from, Mm -hmm. you know, I started running, um, started doing long distance running, you know, just things to get you out the house and just make you feel good. And I think when you sort of really try and focus your mind in that way and and try and be productive and get through something that's making you feel really sad, I think it really helps. It just really helps move you on a bit, sort Mm. of gives you a good, I don't know, it's hard to explain. It was a super depressing time, but also a really validating and sort of it was it was just it was a really bizarre time in my life but a really good time like I really value it now because I think I can look back and feel really proud of sticking it out yeah yep and then it was great because I worked at this clinic with all my friends and I used to 
um, dental nurse with a dentist called Andy. Mm-hmm. And he was my favorite dentist because he was much more laid back than everyone else. Yeah. Um, and so we always found ourselves working together, I think every Wednesday. And we always had a really good time working together. We had a good laugh. He was sort of a bit less Oh, no, there was a few really good dentists there, actually, but I think we sort of got on the most. Yeah. And <laughs> Andy was actually, Andy's actually, I would say, a very important person in my personal growth at that point in my life. Okay. Because, and sometimes not in a nice way because he, <laughs> he didn't really, he didn't really mask things. He just said it as it <laughs> was. So he would say to me, uh, I think it was, I, I couldn't drive and I'd never taken my driving test. And so I was just tramming and bussing everywhere. And um, he's just like, don't be such a loser. Just get your license. <laughs> <laughs> only losers, seriously, feet, only losers can't drive. You've got to get your license. Oh, you know? wow. And he, it was, a, but that hard talk sometimes really helps. Yep. And I was just like, you're right. I should get my license, you mm-hmm. know? So I got my learners and Andy took me out on driving lessons. Uh-huh. Um, and he really helped in that way. And there was, you know, I would study dating and that was interesting. And I would come to work every week and I would sort of give Andy the lowdown on all the dates I'd gone on. Mm-hmm. And, um, and he would sort of share the laughs with me. And sometimes I'd go, yeah, no, I don't think he's right. Or yep, we're definitely getting married. Um, <laughs> Yeah, he was really good because he sort of helped sort of grow my confidence and, like, he was a bit mean sometimes and a bit honest, but mm-hmm. he was also um, a good friend at the time. And I remember very clearly one of his friends came in for a checkup mm-hmm. and um, and Ross is obviously a mutual friend of ours um, and also one of the Glen Waverley gang. Yep. And Andy introduced me to Ross and uh, we were doing the checkup and, and Ross said something about a guy called Greg. And he goes, oh, Greg's broken up with his girlfriend. And I remember the conversation, obviously, as just the sort of observer. Mm-hmm. It was Everyone was very shocked and Andy couldn't believe it. And Ross was like, yeah, no, it's mental. And, you know, once Ross had left, <clears throat> I think Andy said something like, oh, well, I've got a single friend now so I can hook you up. <laughs> so I laughed. And I said, well, you have to show me a picture first. Yeah, and so he showed me a picture and I'm like, oh, actually, he's kind of hot. And I'm like, yeah, go on. Mm-hmm. Give him my number. And, like, this is a guy who's just broken up with his yep. girlfriend. This is highly insensitive. <laughs> um, and I really was just, like, messing around. But I think Andy passed my number on and gave Greg my Facebook details. Oh, cool. And we arranged to meet up on a blind date. Mm-hmm. And it was like, well, I think it's one... I think it was one day in March we um, decided to meet up on a Friday night and it was so weird because I'd been on a fair few dates, yeah. right? I'd been doing a lot of dating and I was kind of just, I remember leaving for the night and my housemate saying, good luck, you know, hope it goes well. She goes, you know, just be cool. Because um, <laughs> that's really easy to do. <laughs> just be cool. And she goes, don't overthink stuff. You know, this is just like, you know, just a normal date mm-hmm. if you don't like him you know, I can ring you or something, you know, the whole deal, you know, like you need to come home. Um, and I says, yeah, look, I've got this. It's all good. Um, he sounds like a nice guy. And I remember we met on Brunswick Street at Little Creatures. Mm-hmm. Honestly, I reckon within the first 10 minutes of just sitting with him, I'm like, this is a big deal. Wow. This is a game changer. And cool. it's like, I knew, it's really weird. It's like I knew from the get go. I just knew. And yep. I was like, yeah, he is 
awesome. And I didn't even know him. No. But I just got that feeling. I was just like, yeah, he's actually really special. And it, and it turns out, obviously, he was because mm. we got married, like, I think four years later. <laughs> so. Wow. I haven't heard that story yeah, before. I so. knew that Andy um, hooked you up. Yeah. But I hadn't heard. That's really lovely. Yeah. And he was, um, yeah, he was um, very charming. Mm-hmm. I remember Andy saying that, you know, oh, Greg's very charming. He's always mm-hmm. very charming with the ladies. But he was very charming and very respectful um, mm-hmm. and just really calm. He had like a really calming sense about him and yeah, he was lovely. So it turns out that that really sort of depressing part of my life turned out really great because I had some really good friends to help me through it. And then Mm -hmm. obviously I had my work friend who was able to literally find me a husband. (laughs) (laughs) So I always thank him for that. Find his feet. (laughs) Yeah. He loves that. Yeah. He always (laughs) liked that. And I found you a husband. (laughs) Yeah. You owe me for life now. Yeah, yeah. So cool. I like that story. Yeah, it's a good story. I like that one. Yeah. yeah. So you've been together then for seven years, did you say? Yeah, we've been together seven years. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. And how long was it before you were kind of like super serious? And Oh, I think we were both pretty serious from the get-go. Yeah. I think we'd both sort of gone through life pretty I think we've both gone through life and gone through sort of heartbreaks and mm-hmm. both knew what we wanted. I think we were yeah. both quite clear. And mm-hmm. we both communicated quite clearly what we wanted. Greg was very clear that he his main goal was really to settle down and mm-hmm. he really wanted to have a family. Yeah. Um, and I was cool with that. Like mm-hmm. I didn't necessarily want a family at the time, but I'd never really thought about having a family. Yeah. I think with my last relationship it was a bit different. But, yeah, no, it just worked out really, really well. How old were you then? So I had Ethan when I was 28. Oh, right. Yep. So I met Greg when I was 25. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, yeah. 25 is pretty. Still like, young. Yeah. It's like, yeah, that's a one-day thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Still young. But, look, it, it worked out for the best, really. Amazing. Yeah, that's good. Did you always know you wanted kids? No, I didn't. I definitely didn't. Okay. Yeah, for a long time I didn't want to have children. Mm-hmm. I just couldn't really, I couldn't really imagine it. But I always had this, I wanted to just keep going and just keep travelling. Like my mm-hmm. sort of ideal, especially when I was on my own, my ideal was maybe just to move to Canada or something or do something different, just keep going. I was quite happy. Once I'd found my feet on my own, I was quite happy on my own. Yeah, Um, okay. I was, yeah, I didn't really, I was really scared of the whole marriage kids thing for a while. But I think, so I, this is a whole, this is opening a whole new can of worms. (laughs) I grew up a Jehovah's Witness. Uh Aha, yes. And um, when you're a Jehovah's Witness, one of the basically for a woman especially is you are essentially just expected to get married. You can have a family if you want to. That's never pushed on you, but you're certainly expected to get married. Yeah. And you're certainly expected to be the wife mm-hmm. of someone. Uh, so I didn't really, I left the Jehovah's Witnesses when I was 21. Okay. But that was the age where all my friends were getting married. Um, yeah. And that's really young. And even I knew, and that's someone who'd, been born in to the religion my whole life even I knew that that was crazy <laughs> um and I'd had boyfriends who were Jehovah's Witnesses yep. but the rule is if you have a boyfriend you have to have a boyfriend with the view of marriage so like you can't just have a boyfriend and, and try you, things out yeah you have mm-hmm. to and because you're obviously not allowed to have sex that's like way banned good lord no um, and you have to communicate with the elders in the congregation what your intentions are. 
So you can't just go and hang out with someone that you fancy and have a bit of a pash and that's it. You know, it's got to be. And it used to freak me out because I would have some boyfriends and then they'd start doing the talk. They would go, you know, we need to go and talk to the elders and let them know what our intentions are because I'm okay to get married if you are kind of thing. And then Mm -hmm. that's the whole pathway. Mm -hmm. No, I was just like, no, that's not what I want. Yeah. Um, It was never what I wanted. So it was too, uh, yeah, it was too intense. I mean, that wasn't the reason I left, but it certainly put me off marriage for a long time because. Did you find your peer group within the is it like within the congregation were they all quite compliant with that or were you know were there kind of different levels of adherence yeah good good question yes and no yeah that there were there were people who weren't compliant um Mm -hmm. a a lot of the time it was things I wasn't aware of at the time but aware of after the fact that they weren't compliant with the rules I always stuck to the rules because I was I think I was a good kid. Like it was, I grew up in that religion and I think I knew from a really early age that it wasn't for me. Mm. Earlier than maybe most people sort of realised that it's not for them. But it just took me a really long time to leave because it it holds you there quite strongly. I imagine and that would be your your entire community. They were my whole community. So you weren't allowed to hang out with people who weren't Jehovah's Witnesses and are you ostracized when you leave? Is that a yeah, very much so. Yeah, very much so. Um, when you decide to leave the Jehovah's Witnesses, there's two ways out. You're either disfellowshipped, mm-hmm. so you're hauled to a group of male middle class elders, and they decide to kick you out mm-hmm. based on grounds of whatever sin or um, rule you've broken, mm-hmm. or you decide to leave yourself. Okay. If you leave yourself, you can excommunicate yourself, but the end result is still the same. You still get treated the same. Yeah. Because you've opted to leave. And it's a really traumatic thing to go through to decide to leave and have your entire community and all your friends, like everyone you've grown up with, just turn their back, literally. Yeah. It's very few of them didn't. And on the low, kept in contact, but it was always email. Yeah, okay. So it was never like we can go out for drinks and things. Yeah. So it was difficult because I was 21, so I hadn't got any school friends. Yeah. Because all my school friends, I was never, it was, school was really difficult because you can only really be friends with them in nine to three every day. And then after that, like you weren't allowed to do anything with them. They were, anyone who wasn't a Jehovah's Witness was viewed as bad association Mm -hmm. and someone who could compromise your faith, um, which I always thought was really weird because I think if your faith is compromised, then you don't have faith. So, but um, that was my argument. But school was very difficult. When I left school, I didn't have any friends, but mm-hmm. I was fine with that because yep. that was that was the way things had to be. I was just yep. like, well, they you know, they weren't my friends anyway. And that's your normal, I and guess. And that was my normal. Yep. But when I left the Jehovah's Witnesses and my only friend group were no longer available, then you're mm-hmm. literally in a world where everything is just black and white. There is nothing. You just feel completely empty. It was a really weird experience it was really weird I went through like some crazy depression I bet um because I left home it was hard telling my parents because I decided you're told all the time when you grow up that you can leave right 
But the thing about controlling groups is they can say you have that option, but you don't really have that option. It's like you don't have an option to have it all. It's this or that. Yeah. And And it's a big gap between saying something. and And my parents were devastated when I said that I wasn't going to come to meetings and be a Jehovah's Witness anymore because Mm -hmm. I don't know if you know the the belief system of a a Jehovah's Witness. Not well. It's basically like any um, Christian denomination that's a little bit more extreme. Extreme. They... Like every religion, they believe that they're the only religion. Mm-hmm. They, they believe that they're the one that will be standing there at the end. Yep. But that's every religion, right? Mm-hmm. They believe that God is going to, at some point really soon, completely wipe the earth of mm-hmm. everyone except Jehovah's Witnesses because right. they're the ones that he's picked. He's going to, God will then, once the world's gone, sorted, we're all off, mm-hmm. um, he's then going to take the earth back to its paradise state that it was in the first part of the bible so like when adam and eve were around yep essentially the only people that are going to survive are jehovah's witnesses and therefore why we knock on like why they knock on doors is to save people Mm -hmm. and to convert them into the jehovah's witnesses let's be real it's a much more insidious thing than that it was and a lot of the time this knocking on people's doors to save people was a two-way thing because they also had to do the knocking on people's doors and write their hours down to show that they're doing something in the church. Yeah. Because if you don't do that, you're also branded bad association and you could get disciplined for not doing that. Do you know what I mean? So it was, oh, we're saving people, but you also need to show that you're doing that. Otherwise Mm -hmm. you're going to be like ostracized for it. So it was like, um, yeah, it was like having to like clock in your your work card every day. Is it also... I don't, I sometimes I get them mixed up with like the Seventh Day Adventists as well, because one of them, there's like actually limited spaces in paradise. So the more people you convert and bring over to your faith, then the higher up the rankings you get to be part of paradise. But there are actually only limited spaces. No, that might be Seventh Day Adventist. Because the way the Jehovah's Witnesses work is that they think that if they can save as many people as possible, then. That's the added bonus because they are doing God's work and they yeah. want to save people and they are a loving organisation of people who only have people's best interests at heart. I can vouch for the opposite yep. from my experience. I think what people understand of Jehovah's Witnesses compared to what they're actually like are very, very different. I yep. think they have a good PR, <laughs> <laughs> which is, they, look, it's a huge organisation. Mm. Like there are, I think there's, I mean, small for like a religion, but for an organizational group, they're they're quite big. I think there's um, maybe 8 million members worldwide and they all have to contribute financially towards Mm. the religion. And the religion is also essentially run by seven men in America. I think these are all things I always had problems with because we used to have to take instruction and direction from these men. Yep. And they sort of claimed to be directed from God or they understood what God wanted of them. And we then had to take these instructions from them. And I used to ask my mom, is this not really weird that we're just listening to just a bunch of guys? I kind of think my mom gets it, but not really. I mean, okay. they're, they're quite indoctrinated. So so um, they're still part of the yeah, church? Yeah, they're still part of it. Okay. Um, most of my family are. It's just me that isn't. And my youngest sister was disfellowshipped. She was in an abusive marriage oh. and they sided with him, which is an, another thing as well that's quite common in the religion is like 
the real patriarchy. Yeah. It's a, you know, protect the dudes at all costs sort of situation. And she was in a very difficult situation. So she had to, she had to call it quits and get out of her marriage. And the only way she could do that was to get disfellowshipped. So she ultimately had to give up her whole life just to be able to escape this. And be safe. And be safe. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it's, it was, um, it was a really odd upbringing, I guess. Yeah. So what do you think it was that made you question things? So from as long back as I can remember, I always really struggled with my identity as a Jehovah's Witness. Okay. And I found it really embarrassing. I found To be one. To be one. Okay. I was so embarrassed. Um, and I remember as a kid, um, every Saturday, mm-hmm. we used to have to go out on the field ministry and knock on people's doors. Yep. And that was a, a requirement and, and an expectation, even mm. of children, to go out with their families and knock on people's doors. And every Saturday, I used to get on my coat and boots because it's always freezing. And <laughs> um, we used to knock on people's doors. And I remember kids opening up the doors and they would still, it was Saturday morning, they'd be in their pajamas and they'd be yeah. watching the Disney Channel. And I remember feeling so embarrassed to be there because mm. I was just really embarrassed to talk about God. I just don't think it ever resonated with me, even as a child. I just, okay. it just never did. And I just found the whole thing really humiliating. And I just used to have to knock on people's doors and sometimes the worst thing would happen and it would be someone from school. And sometimes I would be on a street. I grew up in a fairly small town. Um, Harrogate in, in Yorkshire is relatively small. And I knew where a lot of my schoolmates lived or people I knew from school. And I remember streets and I wouldn't know exact doors exactly, but I knew mm-hmm. that like maybe my crush lived on this road and oh I would beg not to not please don't make me do it please don't make me knock on doors but you have to do it because Mm -hmm. you know you've got to have faith and you know God always sees your hard work and sees the sacrifices you make and you'll be rewarded for them kind of thing right but it never took away the humiliation it was the same at school as well so school was like a traumatic experience a lot of the time Mm. because you had to be seen as different you were actively encouraged by the religion to stand out as different. Right. Which is the complete opposite to what you want to be at school. At school, yeah. you just want to blend in. Yeah. At school, you just want to be accepted and normal. You don't want to be different. And that's actually a really normal stage of development as yeah. well. That's, you just want yeah. to, especially as a teenager, you just want to blend in. Like, mm. I don't want anyone to notice me. But it was so often that you would have to um, not participate in sort of any Christmas-related uh, subjects or do you know so yeah it was always a thing and you were never allowed to go to birthday parties so even if you're invited you weren't allowed to go I had a friend in primary school and I just you know I was young so but that was just the saddest thing I'd ever heard was that this this girl never had a birthday mm-hmm. and I just thought but like, when do you get your presents? Like, when do people, like, shower the love and attention on you? When do you get to have your parties? And I guess never. It was never. never. Yeah. No. I think my parents, uh, a couple couple times um, on their wedding anniversary, which, oddly, wedding anniversaries were the one thing that Jehovah's Witnesses celebrated. Okay. And I think that was also the real thrill of getting married was you knew that that was coming because <laughs> <laughs> no one got any Christmas presents. There was no birthdays. So I grew up without anything like that. Mm. And I used to long for the day where people would sort of bring me presents and make a fuss over me, but I never had it. Yeah. Anyway, getting back to like why I left, mm. I think it was so hard for me to 
find my place outside yep. and inward in the community, I found a lot of hypocrisy yep. and I found a lot of um, control that mm-hmm. I was really uncomfortable with, a lot of rules that I was really uncomfortable with. I'll give you an example as a yeah. female at um, a meeting or a church meeting. Um, my role would be to sit and listen to the men on the platform give me instruction, but I was never allowed to stand up on the platform and give instruction. As a female, I was allowed to put my hand up and answer a question, but I was never allowed to. The guys got these things called privileges where they were allowed to operate the microphones or, you know, <laughs> do the audio, but there was they were like things that should be open to everyone should they have an interest. Yeah. But we were never allowed to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was things like we were never allowed to lead a group or speak in a group. If there was a guy there, he would have to do it. Right. And I used to get really angry. I didn't I didn't realise why I was so angry. I just thought it was and it this was something I grew up with. So it's something yeah. really that like most people just go, Oh, well, that's that. But yeah, it just seemed so archaic to me. Even mm-hmm. as a kid, like even as a kid, I just it used to really annoy me that my gender was the reason why I wasn't allowed to do something. Yep. And so, so one of my friends, a guy, was allowed to go and go away and do some cool experience that I wasn't allowed to do. Yeah. Used to grate on me, I think, the follow-ups. You know, I stopped going to meetings. I sort of faded really. I stopped going, knocking on people's doors. That gained attention because I no longer was clocking in my hours. Yep. Um, And I had meetings with elders who were asking me what's wrong. Is my faith struggling? Um, And I said, no, no, I'm cool. I'm cool. I'm just really busy. I was working full-time job. Okay. I was tired. I wanted my weekends to myself. I didn't think that was much to ask. And then there was other things like I'd start dropping off meetings and I stopped socializing with a lot of people because I started to know what direction I was going in um okay and I kind of felt myself it was easier to distance because I knew that they would cut me anyway. anyway um and then I think it all just came to a head one day when my parents I was still living at home and my parents told me to get ready for church and it was a Thursday night and I just got home from work and I said I'm not going and um I think my mum lost it um and she's like you have to go and I'm like but I actually don't but I actually don't yeah have to go I said there's nothing, there's no reason why I have to go. I'm an adult now. There's mm-hmm. no reason why I have to go. You want me to go, but that's not enough reason for me to keep going. Yeah. And we had this huge argument. And don't forget my parents are of the view, as of everyone else, that that decision ultimately condemns me to death. Yeah. Because they believe now that I will die at Armageddon because yeah. I'm not a believer. Um, and so it was a very difficult concept for my parents to get around because it's essentially like, well, I, like I'm terminal, but like long-term terminal, yeah. like I'll die at some point. And, and they, they love you yeah. and they want the best yeah, for you. Yeah, and that's it. And like I can't really blame them because I understand that that's their belief and they really, really strongly believe that. Yeah. So it took us a really long time. When I left home the week a week later, I found a room in a share house and oh I goodness. literally packed my bags and left because I couldn't stay at home knowing that I was hurting them. Yeah. And then, yeah, that week word got out to everyone that I was not going to meetings and no longer a Jehovah's Witness and I got messages from people, my friends. I got messages like one after the other. I heard the news. I'm so sorry. Is there anything I can do? It was like I was dying. Yeah. Like It's like I just got diagnosed with something. And then eventually the kindness stopped and then the messages started like, I'm sorry, but I cannot continue talking to you or I'm sorry, you're uninvited from our wedding. 
I'm sorry, Fee, you know, I can't be seen with you in public, so we can't go for coffee. It was those kind of things. And then eventually it just all dropped off. Again, I found myself alone. So I've been alone a lot. Yeah, wow. But it's, they're all, they're all sort of areas where you have to get to your absolute rock bottom. Yeah. Before you really start seeing that you can do more with your life. The other reason why before we talked about uni and limiting yourself is further education, especially for women as a Jehovah's Witness, is just like no point. Why would you? (laughs) I mean, your job was to get married and look after your husband and you wouldn't really need a job because, one, your husband is meant to provide for you anyway and, two, why would you waste your time at uni because, like, the world's going to end. Yeah. Yeah. Why would you get a career? And why would and and it was this was actively um, pushed. Don't go to university because you'll only meet people who make your faith worse. Yep. Don't go to university; it's a waste of time and money because the world's going to end. And like, who needs doctors and lawyers in like when the world's restored and mm-hmm. everyone's like happy? Yep. Just don't do it. Like it's just a really fruitless exercise. It's very fatalistic. Yeah, isn't it? very. But it, yeah. the whole yeah. But you grow up with that kind of belief that everything is going to end it's a kind of really weird way to spend your childhood absolutely um, knowing that like you just because people are constantly telling you as well do this or you might not survive yeah and that's to me um, terrifying terrifying and damaging look I I would never say a bad word about my parents they only did what they thought was right for me Mm -hmm. but when you look at it from an outsider and now as a parent who has young children yeah to push that belief that if if they don't behave a certain way, they ultimately will die is really damaging for yeah. a child. And you spend your life scared, like, of the things you've done. Like, you maybe did something at school, like I opened a birthday card and I'm like, I think he, I think God's probably seen me. And then, yeah. like, and then I have to go and repent. So I go and tell my mom, like, I put my birthday card in my bag or, like, I read it and I said thank you or, like, someone says happy birthday to me and I said thank you. Like, I felt like I was such a worldly person. Yeah. You know, so it's just this constant fear that you live with. Um, And that fear does not ever leave when you leave. When I walked away, that fear did not go away. In fact, it got worse. And that's why my depression got worse. Because I felt like, yeah, because it's really hard to leave that indoctrination, even though I reject it and I didn't want it in my life anymore. I felt like the beliefs, the belief system and the people were toxic. You still can't help but believe that the world's going to end. And you keep like, my mum would text me. It was the 2008 global recession, right? Yep. And my mum was like, oh, there was, there's something in the Bible that suggests that the, you know, the global financial world will collapse and then the end will come. And I'm like, mm, I'm pretty sure like someone who wrote something like, I don't know, 3,000 3, years ago did not predict that yeah, yeah. The, the global stock market would crash yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and everything would just go tits up. And yeah, it's a bit of a stretch. But when she says that, it triggers that response mm. like that fear and that's something that took years to go away have you have you needed like professionals to help you I probably should have done yeah okay (laughs) I probably should have done and I probably still like carry some things with me that I'm very aware of yeah that I could probably would probably help if I had someone to talk to about it and sort of deprogram from it would take someone who actually really understood I think there are actually psychologists out there that uh, specialise in like cult deprogramming and religious deprogramming. Yep. My coping mechanism was just to bury it. Mm. But I think I've carried 
it through my life. And mm. I think the main thing I've carried through my life is rejection. So I think that's been the one thing that has scared me the most. And I feel socially hard to sort of spread out. Yeah, like okay. It's a real struggle. Like I get exhausted from it. I and I think it's, um, and I think it all probably just stems back from just those feelings of like, having friends and then having nothing and then yeah. just the emptiness of nothing and then don't think and I left England to start a new life because yep. I desperately wanted to be someone different yeah okay and not to be the girl who left her religion and didn't have any friends yeah so I wanted to go to a new country and start a new life and just the walls I kept hitting with like yeah. making relationships and things was really hard so I think at some point I just kind of stopped um Mm -hmm. and I think what's been really good about being married to Greg is Greg's always had a really strong base he's had a really strong friendship group and that's really helped me because it's good to just have always have people there Mm -hmm. and not always be sort of searching for people or trying to be I don't know not trying to be accepted but just looking for people that are happy to introduce you into their friendship group. Absolutely. Um, because it's something that is actually surprisingly harder than you would realise. And I think Greg was always very lucky because obviously Melbourne is his base. Um, yep. He's still friends with his friends from school. Yep. So, I mean, these are things, I mean, like you guys, you and the girls have been sort of friends 20 years. I mean, that's just, I mean, one, it's quite rare and two, yeah something a lot of people dream of like yeah yeah I'm you know I do have one school friend one school friend that I'm still friends with now and his name's Gareth and he was my bestest friend in school and he understood why I could never hang out after school okay he was a bit of a larrikin though we were very different so I was super conservative and he was like the pothead um who used to skip class and just go (laughs) smoke weed behind the bike shed but there was something about our relationship that when we were together mm-hmm. he just saw me for me totally and like we've been best friends for years he actually moved over to melbourne for four years okay just to pursue some jobs i think he wanted to try and move, i think maybe he wanted to try and go in the mines or something because he's a tradie um and he flew home eventually and he got married to his long-term girlfriend and they had kids but he was he's always been my friend like he yeah. was always my one friend who was really awesome in school but like to say that you've got a group that you can always rely on for stuff is something that yeah I definitely envy and I know my sister who's gone through similar experiences Mm. is the same thing she struggles with the same thing as well she's like it's really hard just to find people to sort of mix in with when you have literally had to start from scratch absolutely Um, but it's a big learning experience and it's also forces you to push yourself yep constantly do you ever stop and acknowledge the strength that you must have to have been able to get through yes I do with my sister I debrief with my sister and I think it's been really nice to debrief with her because for a long time I didn't have anyone to debrief with Mm. and my sister was not allowed to talk to me for four years while she while she was in her um while she's in her marriage I was completely banned because her husband viewed me as um some like crazy rebellious feminist freak whereas really I was just a normal average person yeah, <laughs> and you the crazy one yeah and she was banned from seeing me actually when me and Greg flew Ethan over our our son when me and Greg flew Ethan over to my parents in 2016 Ethan was 
just shy of one year old and she okay. lived 10 minutes down the road and she wasn't allowed to come and see me. Oh, that would have been heartbreaking. And so she never met Ethan when he was a baby. Yeah. Um, and I was so cross at her because she was so controlled that she couldn't even say he said it. She made out that she was the one that was doing it. Yeah. And for a long time, I couldn't accept that my sister, we were best friends growing up. I mean, we all like, really, we were just all each other had for such a long time. I couldn't understand why she would do it and why she would say no. And like, she's always been so accepting. And I I kind of deep down knew that it wasn't her, but she used to sign off on the text messages. And I go, I just can't believe she'd do this to me. And it turns out she reached out to me maybe about two years after my visit home with Ethan mm-hmm. and said, I just want to let you know I'm leaving I'm leaving Reese and Dad's helping me. Wow. He's gone to golf and I've packed she had to pack her bags. She had to like get all her documents in order. Like she'd yep. planned it for weeks. Yeah. So like she had everything ready to go. She had passport, birth certificate, everything she needed like on her. Mm-hmm. And then she really slowly started to get rid of her clothes. Like she'd say she was doing a charity run, you know, reducing everything. So all she had to do was pack one suitcase and she was gone. And he oh went to God. golf and he, so that was like four hours he'd be gone. And she was, he told her that she had to go on the field service and knocking on people's doors because that's also like a requirement. If you're not working as a female, you just spend your time knocking on people's doors mm-hmm. because that's seen as very valuable. Yeah. Yeah, he'd gone and, she, and my dad knew all about it and my dad wasn't having any of it. And he knew the repercussions of Tizzy leaving her husband in the religion. Yeah. But I think my parents, unlike a lot of Jehovah's Witnesses, are actually more human and more empathetic okay and my parents weren't having a bar of it Mm -hmm. and so my dad drove around when tizzy gave him the thumbs up and collected her stuff and she was gone they she went to stay with him Uh, she went to stay with my parents um and yeah shit hit the fan but then after that i found out everything like he'd sent all those text messages yeah she was crying begging to go and see her nephew you know and he wouldn't allow her he would take her keys off her there was one time where he had to go and do something and he locked her in the car and took her phone away. You know, this is the kind of stuff that she had to live with. And it's things that I've heard that other people have had to live with too. Yeah. Um, And I think it just stems from a really systemic lack of respect for women in that religion, which is just pretty much in every piece of literature that they distribute and every Mm. teaching that they offer is very much... Every, yeah, yeah. Every aspect of the life. Yeah. Yeah. I remember once I was at a Jehovah's Witness wedding and the one of the really popular things for the, like, elder who's doing the talk to say was, you know, your wife is like, <laughs> your wife is a delicate vase, a decoration to the husband. And I used to, like, vomit in my mouth. <laughs> I just, I could not stand. That's another reason why I never wanted to get married in that religion. Mm. I'm not going to stand there and have someone say that I'm a decoration to someone. What a no. ridiculous thing to say. But they really did. I mean, that was so what they were about and still is really. I mean, yep. they will deny it. They will deny many practices that they do behind closed doors. Yep. Like I said, they've got a pretty good PR team, I'm sure, up at head office or wherever they operate, like Wizard of Oz style. Um, <laughs> a woman and a and an ex-believer point of view, it's I believe it's quite an insidious institution, organisation, whatever, and I'm just happy to be out and I'm happy my sister's out as well and we're both safe and happy. Good. Where does that leave your parents if they've got two children who have been 
Um, it's really sad, actually. My dad, so f- when I got married to Greg, it was really obvious that there weren't many people from my side at the wedding. Yeah. None of my sisters came. So I've got three others. I've got three sisters. Oh, right. Yep. And no one came. And then obviously no one from the UK came because no one was my friend. Because <laughs> oh. no one was my friend. Because like everyone I knew from the UK was didn't talk to me anymore. So yeah. it was just my parents. And um, I remember my parents had been warned not to come to my wedding because it was a non-believer wedding and yep. it was something that was not openly encouraged in the faith. And my parents came anyway. Mm-hmm. And my dad used to be an elder and he was a good, he's a good guy. Like he was a gentleman yeah. and he always tried to look for the best in people. And I always bashed those sort of middle-aged men that were in charge of everything. My dad was a real empathetic, gentle person um, mm-hmm. and I would never bunch him in with the rest of them. And my dad kind of said, screw you and went. And they removed him as an elder when he got back from Australia and he was no longer able to have any of the privileges he had in his congregation as like a well-respected sort of man in the congregation. And I think me and my sister leaving the Jehovah's Witnesses um, essentially is a, it's like a tarnish on your relationship because I think you are seen in the community as failing somehow to instill a good, strong relationship with God in your children. Yep. So you, you, you are, you have failed. Like there is mm. obviously something you did as a parent that wasn't right. When in fact, I think my parents were probably the most successful Jehovah's Witnesses because I know my mum especially would always say, you've just got to live your life. You know, mm. once she accepted that that was it, she's yep. always been on my, she's always been fighting for me. Always. That's amazing. Yeah. So it's really sad how people get treated. My other two sisters are still very much in. I don't have lots to do with them. Okay. I think they have their, they can talk, but not too much. Okay. So I think they have their sort of distance, although they'd never admit that they would never talk to us. It's very minimal. But yes, it's, it can be quite a divisive thing for families Mm. if someone decides to leave, even though they kind of say that it's not, it's not true. (laughs) It's kind of like, oh no, it's fine. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. And they're all very. we will judge you and there will be shame. There will be shame. There will be, yep cutting off there will be complete rejection and it's not something that they really advertise and you know what's funny is you have to get baptized mm-hmm. actually you don't have to but you do so it's peer pressure so yep. at some point in your adult life you're either expected to make the dedication to god and get baptized or not but if you don't everyone's like well, what's wrong with you yeah you're obviously not very good association yep. and we probably shouldn't hang out with you anymore because yep. you're not making that decision and mm-hmm. forwarding your life And I remember at 17, I decided to get baptized because I noticed that everyone else around me was getting presents. (laughs) (laughs) Like people would get presents and cards and like get a fuss made out of them. And there's a couple of my friends who got baptized and then they all went out for like a big celebratory meal afterwards and everyone like piled on them. And that was as for a, for a teenager who had Mm. never had that experience. I was just like, dude, I'm doing it. Sign me up. (laughs) doing it and I got baptized and I I got everything I wanted hilarious you're meant to be really super Christian when you get baptized I remember on my baptism celebratory meal I got blind drunk which is like the opposite <laughs> to what you're meant to do you're meant to be super religious I got the presents which is a big thing big tick but what they kind of don't tell you is it's essentially a verbal contract when you get baptized Okay. So that once you're baptized and when you do leave, it makes it even harder All because right. 
they can they can almost forgive someone who isn't baptized leaving because they didn't really view them as a Jehovah's Witness anyway. They just okay. viewed them as like just a wanderer that's yeah. just kind of wandered out. But if you make the commitment and then you leave, that's the yeah. ultimate sin. You're breaking Because right? you're literally breaking a contract with God. So you are just dog shit. Mm. So it was interesting. I mean, it wasn't really worth the presence, but in retrospect. <laughs> you live and you learn. <laughs> yeah, look, the things you do. Yeah, no. But and, yeah, it was an interesting upbringing, I would say. Yeah. So because you had Ethan before you were married. Yes. Was that something that you really had to get your head around or were you kind of by that point kind of like? No, I didn't have to get my head around that uh, because by that point I was very much sort of I felt like I'd really detangled my mind from Mm -hmm. the programming and I felt really confident and comfortable because to me I'd seen so many marriages either fail or be so unhappy that to me commitment wasn't marriage. Yeah. To me commitment was living together and being harmonious in how you live and yeah. just sharing life together was a commitment. Like if you just stay with someone, that's a commitment, right? Yeah, yep. And then I felt once I had Ethan that that was a bigger commitment than anything. Like mm-hmm. you couldn't really top that. You'd literally decided to share a, a human together. Yeah. So there's not really anything that's ever going to break you from that point. Even mm-hmm. if you are separate, you'll always be together at some point. Absolutely, yeah. So I didn't have a single issue with that. I think that's probably what got my mum and dad in trouble because obviously I had had a child out of wedlock. So I was living a, I don't know, what immoral life. Mm -hmm. Um, And that would have obviously been a a big thing. Um, But to me, it wasn't. No, I didn't see it as a big deal at all, at all. Yeah. Good. No guilt. (laughs) I love it. It's funny. um, like my parents split when I was two and then um, my mum's second marriage split when I was about 11. And so I'd always kind of thought, well, just because just you married someone doesn't actually mean that much. And like, you know, who your parents actually end up being, the, the man she's with now, it's like, you know, he's my dad. And so I'd, I was always like, Meh. like, I don't have to be married before I have kids. No. And then something happened when we started talking about it and I was like, no, I actually I actually need the marriage, Get which is really weird coming from like a, a completely non-religious, a very kind of, you know, unconventional family background. Family background. Yeah. But it was something that I needed. But, sometimes, really but sometimes that really sort of cements in people that kind mm. of structure feels really good. Yeah. It feels like a really natural flow. Mm. And I think that's really attractive to some people. I know a lot of people that knew that they wanted to get married and then have have kids I think it was more me you know what because when I was with Greg and after a while we'd always talked about kids but it was always like a bit later let's have a bit of fun first and then when we were really ready and decided oh I think we really want to have a baby I think this would be a a really cool idea it was almost like a rebellious streak in me not to get married (laughs) it was like because it was just what they I just knew that that was wrong that would be compliance so it was almost yeah I just wanted to avoid any compliance and I was cool getting married eventually but Mm. I yeah it was almost as if like well we don't really need to Uh, but funnily enough I we went on holiday on the east coast so we we did a big drive up to Coffs Harbour and that it was at Christmas time and we'd been trying for a baby I reckon for about six months okay and that holiday Greg actually proposed so he brought, it, he brought the ring up and he proposed and we were, like, really excited and 
I think we went to a bar in Port Macquarie and we're just knocking back gin and tonics and like we were getting a bit wasted and really happy. And then a couple of days after that, we went down to Sydney and I was feeling really bad. Mm-hmm. We went to a gig in Sydney and there was something not right, something weird with my hearing, something weird, like I had this headache I'd never had before. And I said, I think I'm pregnant. And we laughed, but it, well, I was. So <laughs> it was like, it was an epic holiday because got engaged yeah. and then literally a week later found out that we were having Ethan. So it was wow. like a really cool, um, it was a really cool holiday and sort of, it was nice. I mean, we put off the wedding, obviously, um, mm-hmm. until I'd had Ethan. He was six months when we got married. Yeah. But it was just so nice to do it that way. I just, you know, it was my little F you to the. Yeah. It can be many things. To my past. <laughs> yeah. yeah it was good. good. Whew. What a chat. What a collection of experience and adversity for Fee and how amazing is she having come through the other side and living life on her terms. I'm happy to tell you that she smashed her exams and she's looking forward to the next chapter in her brilliant career. Can you tell that I'm still trying to figure out what I want to be when I grow up with all my chat with Fee and Deb about study and their career choices? I'd quite honestly been doing my head in about it all last year. What should I study? Can I study? When will I fit it in the time? How can I contribute and make a difference? If I don't get a formal education, how will anyone take me seriously? How will my voice be one worth listening to? It's funny how we can put this pressure on ourselves. None of it real and 100% our own doing. I certainly was, and I constantly felt like a failure, like I wasn't measuring up because of it. Then I went and saw a kinesiologist, and she asked me what all this swirling, confusing energy was about, and I told her. And she asked, what if you were just doing what you're doing right now? Would that be enough? And I thought about how I never have enough time, and how I don't feel like I'm present enough already, and how I don't even know what I want to do yet, and I decided to let myself off the hook. And I tell you, what a freaking relief. I encourage you to try it. What are you applying pressure about that you can just let go of? I promise it feels amazing. It doesn't stop me quizzing everyone about their chosen career paths though. I'm hoping one day the right one will jump out at me. Now I looked up the physics law I referenced at the start of our chat. It's a law of thermodynamics called entropy. Basically that everything is working its way towards disorder. And my God, that feels like life. Sorry for anyone yelling at their phone or radio while they were listening. I get so frustrated when I'm listening to podcasts and they're getting things wrong. Listening back again to this chat, what really struck me is how I never reached out to Fee to hang out unless it was part of a larger group because I assumed that she was just sorted in the friend department. She's open, hilarious, confident and so interesting. I've always walked away from a catch up with her having really enjoyed her company. But I've never made the effort to be a better friend. Making friends as an adult is funny, isn't it? It's like dating almost. I mean, you don't want to be that person and come on too strong. But imagine what you could be missing out on if you don't put yourself out there. What if you're a cure to that person's loneliness? How good is it when someone reaches out to you and wants to be your friend? If you're feeling brave and confident and there's someone whose company you enjoy, seek them out. Include them. You just might make your life and theirs a teensy bit brighter. Okay, that's it for this episode. Be gentle with yourselves and I hope you have an extraordinary week.